0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, I'm Sue Biggins, and it's a privilege to talk to Lee Hartwell today about his pioneering work in understanding the regulation of the cell cycle. This, of course, led to the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2001. Just for background, I want to remind everyone that the cell cycle is an ordered process where The genome and organelles are duplicated and accurately partitioned into daughter cells, and it's really one of the most fundamental things for all organisms. By studying the morphology of temperature-sensitive mutants in yeast, Lee Hart will identify many of the key regulators of the cell cycle. His seminal discoveries included identifying the cell division cycle, or CDC, genes that are now known to be universal regulators of the cell cycle in organisms from yeast to frogs to humans. Perhaps the best-known of these genes is CDC28, which is the master regulatory kinase that controls the progression of cells through the start of the cell cycle. Hartwell is also credited for discovering cell cycle checkpoints, such as the DNA damage checkpoint. Checkpoints are signals that let the cell know if a step in the cell cycle is not completed, and then generate a cell cycle arrest. And Lee, it's really fun to be talking here in Seattle where you did your groundbreaking work that led to the Nobel Prize. Thanks for doing this.
1: My pleasure.
0: So to get started, Lee, um, can you tell us what got you started or interested in science?
1: Oh, going back a long ways. Um, I think the the turning point for me was uh, in high school. Um, I hadn't been a very uh, serious student, but I um, uh, had a great physics teacher who um, challenged me with hard problems to take home and work on. And... I just look back on that as a turning point where I got interested in science. And somewhat. what about
0: biology? When did you get interest in biology?
1: Uh, not until I was in Caltech uh, as a sophomore. I took a. I was planning to be a physics major, and I took a course from James Bonner, um, and uh, it was uh, supposed to be sort of a biology, general biology course, but as I remember it, he spent the entire semester ranting and raving about how great DNA was. So this was about 1957 or so. So it was only a few years after the structure of DNA had been discovered. Um, and he was so exciting, I just changed my major mm-hmm. on the spot and became a biologist. <laughs>
0: great. What inspired you to work on the cell cycle?
1: Well, I looking back, I think that somewhere I gained the perspective that scientists ask big questions. I suppose that I I got that idea at Caltech. But um, after I'd gotten my graduate PhD and was deciding where to go for a postdoc and thinking about what I wanted to work on, um, I chose cell division because, as you say, it's very fundamental to biology. And it seemed like almost nothing was known about it. So um, that that seemed like an interesting direction to go in.
0: And do you want to um, tell us a little bit about the CDC screen? Well,
1: let, let me first just mention how we got into yeast.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Everyone ha- asks that question, why yeast?
1: Yeah. I wrote a grant to do. Um, cell division studies in mammalian cells as I had been doing but I knew I didn't want to do that and I I was really frustrated about what to do and I had about a period of about three months where um, the equipment I'd ordered was on coming but not arrived yet when I just had time to think and um, I, I remember talking to one of my colleagues about this Dan Wolf He was from Delbrook's group at Caltech. I had worked in Delbrook's group as an undergraduate. And he said, well, why don't you look for a simpler organism? Uh, And that was the key for me. And I immediately went to the library and started scouring for eukaryotic cells, where you could do genetics and cell physiology. And so that's how I came to yeast. And uh, it was really because of a frustration with what I couldn't do with animal Mm -hmm. cells.
0: And so that leads me to wonder about looking for temperature-sensitive mutants. Why did you make that decision?
1: Well, I wanted uh, essential genes. Mm -hmm. And I had, uh, as an undergraduate, as I said, worked in Delbrook's group with Bob Edgar. And Bob Edgar did a beautiful piece of work on how... uh, T4 virus is put together, 150 proteins or so, getting mutations in genes that uh, were part of the structure of the virus. Now the problem is, a mutant that's defective in an essential function for the organism is dead. And so you have to make them conditional. So they'll grow under one condition but not under another. And Bob had used temperature-sensitive mutants, and um, uh, Horowitz at um, Caltech, very early in genetics, had gotten temperature-sensitive mutants in the ROSPRA. So I knew about that conditional phenomenon, and so that was the obvious way to go.
0: Now, why don't you tell us the story about the morphologies and how you, what you were looking for and how you went about that?
1: when I moved to the um, University of Washington, the genetics department, um, there was an undergraduate uh, in the laboratory there, Brian Reed, who is now at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Center, studying esophageal cancer. Um, And I, I suggested to Brian that he look at some mutants that formed odd morphologies. And the question was once you... there was some really interesting work in paramecium that showed that if you surgically change the surface of the cell, um, that was inherited. And um, so that was very interesting, some kind of structural inheritance in the surface. So we had mutants that, at a high temperature, became morphologically abnormal. And I suggested to Brian that he look to see um, if that was inherited. So he would shift them to high temperature and then shift them back down to low temperature. And it turned out it wasn't inherited. But um, then we, he got interested in the question, well, how do they go from abnormal to normal? And so he started taking pictures of them in the microscope. And as I remember it immediately we realized how much information there was in these photographs about the cell cycle and started then screening all of our mutants for their morphological changes when we shifted the temperature. Mm
0: -hmm. So, another question I had is, how did you order the cell cycle using your mutants?
1: Well, um, uh, the, the mutants provided some order because, for example, there were mutants that didn't bud. There were mutants that didn't make DNA, and then everything else stopped. There were mutants that didn't divide the nu- made DNA but didn't divide the nucleus and, and different steps around the cell cycle. So in, in principle, what the mutants told us was that there's basically two cycles. Um, when the cell passes the commitment to division that we called start, um, the nuclear cycle is one series of events the DNA synthesis, and the division of the nucleus. And another series of events has to do with the cell surface, which is the formation of the bud, and then uh, eventually the division of the cell wall at, at division time, and then these two, things, two pathways have to hook up at the end. So the, the pathways and events, order of events, was largely determined by the phenotypes of the mutants.
0: Can you explain sort of the two big models you're trying to distinguish between in terms of the regulation of the cell cycle, i.e. the substrate model versus the timing model?
1: So, when the cells stop in the cell cycle because something hasn't been completed, um, the question becomes why they stop. So, let's say a cell can't make its DNA. Um, why does the cell stop with the chromosomes not separated? Why doesn't it just go ahead and try to separate the chromosomes uh, and get incomplete chromosomes and then die? Why does it stop? How does it know? How does the mitotic spindle know that the DNA isn't complete? Okay. So that was the question. And um uh And and there's sort of two ways to think about this. One is that uh, the DNA is part of the mitotic spindle, and if it's not complete, then the spindle just can't function. So that's sort of the substrate model. The other model is that there's signals in the cell. The cell has a communication system that tells it what's happening and what hasn't happened. And that when the DNA isn't replicated, a signal is sent, To the mitotic spindle that says wait, so that's the other model. Mm
0: -hmm. So which one did you discover was correct?
1: So um, yeah, so that was a a story um, that uh, begins with a postdoctoral fellow named Ted Weinert, and um, Ted um, wanted to study regulation, and um, as we were. discussing what regulation might mean. I had collected a bunch of radiation-sensitive mutants in the freezer, and so I got them out, and Ted looked at them, and it turned out that, I think it was just a few days, uh, that he discovered that some of the radiation-sensitive mutants, when you x-ray them, um, arrest cell cycle. So, and they just stay arrested, whereas the normal cell would arrest, repair, and then go on. Um, So these mutants were defective in the repair process. But there were other mutants that just didn't stop dividing. They just kept dividing and produced dead colonies. And so we realized that these were defective in the signaling, and that there was a signal that told the cell when there were breaks in DNA.
0: Right, and you define this as a checkpoint. Yeah. And do you want to say a little bit more about what you view the definition of a checkpoint as?
1: Well, uh, we tried to define it relatively um, clearly um, as um, uh, as something which um, is, is needed to um, arrest division when something goes wrong.
0: At the time when you discovered this checkpoint, Did you think that there might be other checkpoints for other cellular processes?
1: Um, We certainly wondered that. And um, uh, I think over the years, um, a lot more have been discovered. Um, And so, you know, one of the, I think, really fundamental principles about biology that fascinates me is the tremendous accuracy of biological processes. So yeast cells lose a chromosome about once in 100,000 divisions. That's remarkably precise and reproducible, um, especially when you watch mitosis and see the chromosomes jiggling around and everything. You wonder how they keep track of them. Um, and and I suspect that's true for all kinds of cellular processes, that. Normally, we can't measure the accuracy because it is so accurate. And, um, and so the, the extent to which evolution has driven the accuracy of biological processes is really enormous. And it, it, I think it must mean that for most things that go on in biology, there's the basic machinery... There are things which repair the basic machinery when it gets in trouble, and there are things that coordinate that repair with everything else that's going on. Um, and we, we probably only know the tip of the iceberg yet in terms of cell biology.
0: CDC-28 is the most famous conserved cell cycle molecule, probably, since um, that was in large part with winning the Nobel Prize. Um, with Tim Hunt and Paul Nurse's contributions. What did you think, before we knew what that, what that protein did, did you have a feeling what you thought that molecule would end up being?
1: No, I, I really didn't think in terms of biochemistry. I, I wasn't interested in biochemistry. It's funny. Um, but um, I, I was just much more interested in the order uh, and, and regulation of events in, in cell cycle, um, but uh, it's really interesting that um, uh, before that story broke, Fisher and Krebs, who were, had gotten the Nobel Prize for yeah. protein phosphorylation, came to me, and, so, and th- we, we had a meeting, and they wanted to know whether I thought kinases could play any role in the cell cycle. And I said, well, you know, I just don't know, you know. But it was interesting because that was actually the right guess. And mm-hmm. CDC-28 turned out to be a kinase, and their um, suspicions were correct.
0: We now know that many of the CDC genes are conserved. Was it a surprise to you how many were conserved now Now that we know what they all are? Um, were more conserved than you thought, less?
1: I, I think in general... Um, biology has surprised us all in the degree of conservation at the molecular level. Um, and um, we're even seeing... So we, so the answer is yes, for me it surprised me. I was just hoping that cell division in yeast would be enough like mammalian cells to be a useful model. Um, and only after genes were cloned and sequenced and various things. and. Did we find out how conserved they are? I think it's something like 50% of yeast genes can be complemented by human proteins.
0: Right? I think it's amazing what you were able to learn, given how little you could really measure. Um, now we have so many tools to, to know what's happening to different structures in the cell. And you were really limited to just looking at budding. And the nuclear position I'm curious if there was at the time one extra thing you could have seen or one tool you could have had what would you have chosen what what would have given you the most information that you couldn't get at that time?
1: Well we actually had that experience in that um, when we first learned to do photomicroscopy and could look at the morphology of the cells and pick out those that looked like they might be cell cycle mutants, we didn't know what was going on inside the cell. So we had to be able to see the nucleus. Um, and at that time, that was very difficult uh, to, to stain the cells to see the nucleus. And there was only one guy who could really do it. His name was Robinow. And... Um, it turned out there was a, some international meeting, and he was coming to Seattle. And I got in touch with him and asked him if he'd come to the lab a day ahead and show us how to see nuclei and stain them, and he did. And so then we were able to verify that the mutants that looked like cell division mutants were actually defective in, in nuclear division as well.
0: What was so hard about getting the nuclear staining to work?
1: Um, it was just a, um, a, a tricky, because the amount of DNA is so small in the yeast, and you're trying to stain the DNA. Um, and there's 100 times as much RNA as there is DNA. And so um, it's, it's hard to get the staining conditions just right so you can see that DNA.
0: So if there could have been one more structure you could see, what would you have chosen at the time?
1: Oh, well, that's an interesting story, too, now that you bring it up, is, is um, 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 my colleague Brecht Byers um, was in the genetics department, and I went to him at one time and said, well, we've got all these mutants. Um, we should, you know, look at their detailed three-dimensional structure, uh, do thin sections and reconstruct the cell and everything. And he looked at me and he said, there's only one thing of interest, and that's the spindle. And I said, okay. So, he started looking at the spindle on electron microscopy and found that some mutants were defective in making the pole duplicate and some others were defective in forming the spindle.
0: You mentioned earlier, and in your Nobel lecture as well, that when you started your lab, you didn't really have a plan of what you were going to work on. And this is so different than how things work today, where people have to have really well-developed research proposals to get a job and they know exactly what they're going to work on. And I'm just curious if you think this change actually hinders creativity or if this is a good change?
1: I think the present system does hinder creativity. I think that um, um, opening up new fields um, requires a, a, a long incubation period. <laughs> I just recently experienced it myself because the last decade I've been uh, interested in education, and and it's taken me ten years to sort of figure out what I want to do there. Um, and 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 the current system just doesn't allow students to go. Beyond their immediate experience, so you can keep extending what what's already going on and what's interesting and productive, but to really start something new is is very hard to do in the current environment. Uh, established labs can do it if they have a little bit of leeway to try something new for a year or something, but um, that and the whole system of you know counting publications and Uh, impact factors and grants and all the things. I think the best system for sponsoring science was the old system at the MRC in England, which doesn't exist anymore. MRC exists, but the system doesn't exist. They've adopted the American system, unfortunately. But their scientists used to be given a budget yearly that would support themselves and a technician and maybe a graduate student or two, and that was guaranteed regardless of whether they produced anything or not. And then they could get grants on top of that. But I think that basic level of stability allowed some people to do very creative things and take five years to do it before they published.
0: Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.